a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? Welcome, y'all, to episode two, part A of the Howie Games Artist Series, starring part-time triathlete, full-time actor Daniel McPherson. We got no comms, no exfil, one of the most dangerous places on earth. That was the plan, right? Yeah, that was the plan. Dan is the type of person we love on this podcast because when he is asked whether he can do something, he says, yeah, no worries, easy, I can do that. And then he goes and learns how to do it and gets it done really well. In Dan's world, this involves things like, as a teenager, stepping onto the neighbour set as an actor when he really wasn't an actor at that stage. It means saying yes to starring in musicals, then learning how to sing, being cast as an action figure, then working with special forces type dudes to learn how to fire guns and blow up buildings. Easy peasy. I guess in many ways this is an in-depth look at the life of an actor from the lows of constant rejection at auditions to the thrill of landing the gig that takes your career to the next level. And there's plenty of sport chat as well. This pod has left me with all sorts of athletes that I now find myself really invested in. I really care about their performances. I get nervous, really nervous when Sally Fitzgibbon surfs. I cheer my guts out when Paddy Mills steps on the court. I was roaring, like half the country, I presume, for Dan Ricardo at Monza, and ideally want Mitch Marsh to have the success he craves. And now I have an actor to cheer for. I really want Dan McPherson to land his dream role because, as you're about to hear from his story, he deserves it because he has given his career his all. You can catch Dan dominating in his brand new show. It's a US science fiction drama called Foundation. It's on Apple TV from September 24. Check it out. Enjoy the story of Joel Samuels from Neighbours, PC Cameron Tate from The Bill, Jack Keenan from Wild Boys, Sergeant Samuel Wyatt from Strike Back, Dan McPherson from Cronulla. Warning, the Howie Games Artist Series accepts no responsibility for the poor acting attempts in this episode by the host of the show. He's not licensed, skilled or equipped to be attempting such things. Thank you. What about this man, uh, athlete, actor? I've been pumped about having a chat with him all week. The family's pumped about it. The kids are pumped. The whole crew is pumped. Welcome to the Howie Games, a man of many talents, the Artist Series, Dan McPherson. Dan, Great to see your smiling face. How are you going? Hello, mate. I'm going very well. I'm very honoured that uh, that I made the cut, to be fair, mate. I know no. it's an illustrious podcast you've got here, an illustrious series, mate. You're a sought-after man, so thanks, thanks for fitting me in. Mate, I... I... Since we started going down this sort of artistic series, it's been fantastic. I was just saying to you off air. Yeah. And you as an actor, mate, I hope you got a few hours because I've got that many questions for you. I'm fascinated by what you do for a living. Yeah, it, it, look, it's never, it's never dull, I'll tell you that. Um, and and the, the biggest challenge I've found as I've got older is trying to, to work out how to find the normality in a life that is completely abnormal and has been for me for, for over 20 years. Um, I've got plenty of time to chat about it, mate. As long as I, I don't bore your ears off, mate, I'm, I'm happy to go. Well, mate, uh, you're in lockdown at the moment, so you're you're a captive <laughs> audience, so I've got you covered. Before we get, and just a little, we're doing something for the first time on the show as well, which we'll do later in the show, which could be a train wreck on my account. I said to you earlier on, mate, can you send me an email of a script and you show me how you run through a script? So later on in the show, I'm going to play a part and we're going uh, with your hit show, Strike back. So I'm looking forward to this because I can yeah, act my way out of a paper bag. But I'm I'm pumped you sent it through. <laughs> it fascinated me seeing what it's all about. Right, absolutely. That was that was. I've actually sent you through the first audition scene that I ever got for Strike Back back in about 2016. And I had to dig through my emails. Oh, that's a pretty good one. Um, so we'll have a bit of fun with that later today. I'm looking forward to that. All right, mate. <laughs> we always start this with your involvement in sport. And some of the guests have a, an involvement in sport, others don't, but you have a tremendous involvement in sport, mate. So just before we get to the sport and triathlon, just tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what was your influence as far as being outside and playing games because obviously you've been a big part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up um, in a town called Cronulla, uh, about 45 minutes south of Sydney, uh, coastal town, beach town, home of the mighty Cronulla Sharks. Yes. Um, infamous for, for some other... Um, Race rights you may have heard of as well, so it's got a chequered history. But it's a, it was a wonderful place to grow up, um, and surrounded by water and beaches and whatnot. And my parents uh, had me playing sport at an early age. My dad was was is a Kiwi, so um, I started playing soccer under fives, under sixes, under sevens. But dad quickly had me going into rugby 
you know, under sevens, under eights. And, and I, so I was playing rugby as a kid. Um, and, but lots of time in the surf, you know, uh, body surfing, body boarding, riding bikes all around the neighbourhood, like, you know, quintessential beachside Aussie upbringing um, and very active. Um, but I wasn't the world's fittest kid and I was, um, I was an overweight kid. Right. And so I was always playing, I was playing goalkeeper in soccer. I was playing wicketkeeper in cricket because I just wasn't athletic. I couldn't move that well. Um, and I was carrying a lot, of, a lot of weight as a kid. So it wasn't until my rugby coach, uh, a guy called John Holt, who started the Cornell Triathlon Series up here in, in, in Sydney, um, he put on a kids triathlon series and I started racing that with a couple of mates from my footy side. We were 11 years old when we did our first triathlon <laughs> and, and that changed my life, um, but I didn't know that at the time, but it, it began to change my body and it began to change my fitness and it began to change everything in those teenage years when you're 11, 12, 13 and, and you've been an overweight kid and then suddenly you're 14 or 15 and you're ripped and you're fit and you're out in the surf every day and you can yeah. do whatever you want. And, and, and that ultimately led to how I met my first acting manager. But, um, but yeah, it all started back there really when, when, I, when I started triathlons at age 11. And what was it about triathlon that grabbed you? Because uh, you, you described your own physical shape. Mm. My daughter loves the triathlons. It's not something you can just slip into and get puffed on the start of the first swim. It's a very physically demanding sport, mate. Yeah, I think even thinking back, like I, I used to put my shoes on and run up the street. We lived at the bottom of a hill, you know, the family home where we grew up. So I'd have to run five, four or 500 metres up this hill and then run around the block. And I look back at it now, I was only running less than 2K, but I was 11 years mm. old when I was making sure that I strapped on my running shoes and, and got my gear on and got out the door. And, and so there was, there was things about it that, one, I loved, the, I loved moving. You know, I loved, and I still do to this day, you know, whether it's walking, running, hiking, cycling, whatever. But that was probably where I discovered it as a, as a young man. Um, and, and I realised that I had this quite strong internal voice, internal discipline that I was able to tap into um, at that age. And that's something that, that served me well throughout the rest of my, my life and my career. But that was probably when I discovered it, I guess. So triathlon itself, how serious? And, and I want to get to a couple of urban uh, myths that mm. are true or not about you, whether you're actually discovered doing a triathlon. We will get to that. Yeah. But how involved did you get with triathlon and was it a, a potential career path at one stage? We'll get to Hawaii, etc. Yeah. but how seriously did you take it? Um, as a junior, I mean, I grew up in Cronulla in the era of uh, Chris McCormack and Craig Alexander and Makili Jones and Greg Welsh won Hawaii, their first Australian to win wow. Hawaii in 1994. I mean, these were the guys at the local triathlon club and these are the guys that I see at swim training every afternoon at Carrying Bar Pool and I was, we were the juniors looking up at these guys who were the best in the world at the time and, and real pioneers of the sport. So, so it really kind of influenced us and inspired us to see that we were so close to, to the best in the world. And these guys were going off and living in San Diego and living in Boulder and racing in Europe and, and doing that whole thing. And they were, that was just Macca and Crowey and MJ and, and Welshy and the, we'd have VB twisties after a Wednesday night. <laughs> club run, you know, we'd sneak a couple out of the esky because we were 16 and, you know, me and my mates would be around the back of the club having a sneaky beer with, with these guys that were the best in the world. So I was certainly inspired to be good and I and my, my coach down here was taking over the Talented Athlete Program at um, New South Wales Institute of Sport when I was about 15 or 16. It's 15 or 16. And, um, and I... Uh, I uh, I got chickenpox and glandular fever, actually, one after the other. And so when I was 16, um, I was, instead of going on this path to go to N-Swiss and wanted to, to, do, to do it and really see how far I could go, um, I ended up you know, in bed sick for nine months. And ultimately that's when I was the time that I met my first acting manager. Well, I'll get to the acting manager. Your, your triathlon career, mate, I've, I've done some reading. You've done a couple of Ironmans including Hawaii, yeah? you've competed in Hawaii. That's right, yeah. So for those that aren't aware, run me quickly through the distance and run me through the physical and mental 
requirements and potential torment you went through competing in one of the most iconic races in the world? Um, uh, I, I kind of, I can kind of segregate my my triathlon career into two parts. So, so I, yep. I went through in my twenties, and then I, I, I or teens, sorry. And I, I was going to go to the Institute of Sport and I wanted, all we wanted to do was do Hawaii because Welshy and MJ and Chris and then Crowley had all won that race and that was something we wanted to do. And that's what we grew up watching on, on Wide World of Sports every, you know, every, every once a year in October when it would come it, out. That's it, with Big Daryl Eastlake that's running it. the show. That's it, that's it, that's it, you know. And, <laughs> and you'd get these little snippets of the Hawaiian Eye Man. It was, it was yeah. folklore for us. It was legendary for us. It's shortly after dawn in the small fishing village of Kona on the big island of Hawaii. This is the 19th running of the Gatorade Ironman Triathlon, and in all these years it has become one of America's great sporting events. Due in part, perhaps, because its images, as cool as they are, are familiar to us all. But one of the most lasting images is that special look that all the competitors have in their eyes, from first-timers to the great champions when they enter the water, because they know there's a lot that can go wrong out there. But then I quit the sport at 18 and I returned at about 24, 25. So I've been away working on Neighbours, I've been away working on The Bill in London and I've been overseas and I came home and I was 25 and I was, suddenly I was back living in Cronulla for the first time in eight years and I went back into the sport. And so I went and started, I went, that's it, I'm going to go and go and race Ironman. It's my childhood dream. My acting career has kind of taken me on this other path. I'm just going to go back to path A and just tick off my childhood goals before I go back to the acting hmm. career and, and do that. So, Love it. So I went back and uh, raced uh, over the course of the next couple of years, raced uh, Western Australia, Ironman Port Macquarie, Ironman New Zealand, and then ultimately it was Ironman China where I had to go to qualify for Hawaii and finally I qualified for Hawaii and raced the Hawaiian Ironman. So... Um, 3.8-kilometre swim, 180-kilometre bike, 42-kilometre marathon um, to finish the day. Uh, and all of those races are Southern Hemisphere races, and particularly China and, and Hawaii, are brutally hot and brutally hilly. Um, and the day for me to qualify for Hawaii, which was my childhood dream and, and this sort of measure that I had tested myself against up until that point in my life, which is about 20, 28, 29 years old, was this race. And the only chance I had that year of qualifying for it was going to Ironman China in Hainan Island off the southern tip of China during a 10-day production break during from a show called City Homicide that I was working on in Melbourne at the time. <laughs> so I did it. I booked the flights. I went over with my girlfriend at the time. We flew to this race. There was a typhoon that came through the night before the race and, and nearly destroyed everything. And we woke up the next morning and, and it was brutally hot. And I got out and I led the swim out with one of the pro guys who was, you know, an Olympian guy called Rasmus Henning. And he was a lovely guy. And we, and I, but I had to come top two in my age group to get that, to get that Hawaii slot. There are only two slots. Um, and I knew a couple of the other guys racing. So I raced, raced that, got off the bike, started to get really, really hot. And I'm running, I'm running the first 10K of this marathon in second place. So I knew there's one guy up the road, actually another guy from Cronulla who I knew. And, and it was, and I was running like two minutes slower per kilometre than I was anticipating. But my heart rate was 30, 20, 30 beats higher than it should have been at that pace but I was still in second and I was passing people. I was like, couldn't work out what was going on. So I get to the turnaround, I come back and my girlfriend at the time, she goes, take it easy, it's 46 degrees. And I, and I knew it was hot, but I didn't realise because I've been on the bike and it had been windy that there's suddenly this post-typhoon heat wave 46. had come through. Mate, it was brutal. So in the end, I just ended up grinding through this marathon it took me nearly five hours to run a marathon when my, my PB marathon is down around three hours. Um, I ended up uh, I, I ended up winning in my age group. And funnily enough, the guy in front of me who I knew from Cronulla passed out and had heat stroke and I saw him go into the back of an ambulance. He was fine. We had a beer after the race. It was all good. But um, so there was brutal, brutal race that, that um, and then I had to jump on a plane the next day and fly back to Melbourne to be back on set for Monday at City Homicide. Well, how sore were you when you roll up on Monday? Oh, it was brutal. 
I mean, I was asleep. I was, I could hardly get out of bed. I was, I was a wreck, you know. And then they, look, they might have even given me the day off. So I might have had to fly on Sunday overnight. And I was back on set Tuesday, actually. So, but mate, I, I was having PTSD dreams that I was still out on this run course, you know, for a couple of weeks. So it was brutally <laughs> hot. So by the time I qualified for Hawaii and I got to Hawaii, which was that race was in April, Hawaii was in October. Um, Hawaii was the reward for going through the, the the torment and the hard work. Hawaii was the bonus destination. The journey was the hard bit. And um, and Hawaii was amazing and I, and I loved it and um, it took me 10 and a half hours to, to go around there um, and, and I got the full experience. I had a beautiful, great swim getting whacked around by all these other German athletes um, in the waters off Hawaii. I, I got to experience a beautiful windy day. Um, up to the turnaround at, at Kauai High and, and Harvey and back, uh, which is all this iconic stuff that I'd grown up watching. And then I ran out to the Energy Lab, which is this iconic turnaround point mm. in the big island out there. And the wheels completely fell off and I couldn't keep any fluid down. And I had 12 of the most agonising kilometres I could getting back into town, um, which is exactly what you sign up for, right? Like, so I got the full the full experience. So on that, if we were doing the sports podcast, I'll yeah. ask you, in those last 12K, yeah. Dan, where do you take yourself mentally? Because at that stage, I presume it is mental rather than physical. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'd thrown my toys out of the pram. I, I knew that all right, my body was shutting down. I couldn't keep fluid down. My stomach was, was, I looked like I was about seven months pregnant. You know, like the body was just going, okay, you're not, we're not digesting food. We're not processing fluid right now. And I went to some really dark places and I, and I didn't, I, I didn't in hindsight, probably I didn't have the intense focus or the ability to go as deep and as disciplined as I did in China six months earlier to get the spot because in Hawaii, I wasn't racing for anything other than to finish the Ironman. And so the, the carrot was a bit different, mm. but when suddenly I got to three or four kilometres to go and with 2K to go, there's a big hill. It's a famous hill where Mark Allen and Dave Scott raced up the, day, the, the, yeah. big, the big hill there at Pay and Save. And I was running up that hill and that's at the 40 kilometre mark. And I had this euphoria, this euphoric kind of floating painlessness came over me of going, oh, my God, I've done it. And it's all downhill and I've got 2K to go and I'm going to finish on Elite Drive. And... I suddenly thought, well, if I've been racing for 10 hours and it feels like this, what's it like to race for 20 hours? Or what's it like to race for 50 hours? And I, and I, re, I relayed that story to some friends at the finish line. I went, you're nuts, mate. You're absolutely nuts. Ryan, you're home. You did it. You are a man. Did you have a... An amazing sense of achievement, as I said. You, you know, you've grown up. You watched it with Daryl East, like to actually complete it. Yeah, I did. I did, and I saw not only for myself, but you know, I've got photos up on my wall of my dad high fiving me at the forty-one kilometer mark. Um, you know, with an Aussie flag coming out of the back of his backpack, and and you know, my whole family over wherever they're watching. And so, what it meant to me, it also meant a lot to my family and my friends, and and I probably didn't realise that until I got a bit older, you know, just the significance. And now I'm a father as well, just to realise the significance of, of what I was doing. I was just putting my head down, going, oh, I want to do this race and, and I'm going to commit my life to it. And, and even going back to those days, like there was a, a 60 Minutes interview on Greg Welsh, who, who, who became a great mate and, and still is. Um, but he said, oh, when I went to win the Hawaiian Ironman, I... I devoted, you know, six months of my life every year to that race. And the result, I could turn around and say that first place or that second place or whatever he came that year, that's what my last six months was about. You know, that six months of effort gets to quantified by that, by that number. So, so going back to, I really took what Greg Welsh said in that interview to heart and, and sort of would go off and really compartmentalise areas of my life for certain rewards and, and probably still do to this day. One more on sport. Yep. And you were coming back from Ireland or somewhere and I saw on social media in quarantine again, mm. which you're in at the moment, unfortunately, and I've seen your obsession 
with uh, the Liverpool Football Club. So I think I sent you an episode with the great Craig Johnston yes. to try and help you yes. get through yes. quarantine. Yes. Why the obsession with Liverpool? My, um, my grandfather and namesake, Daniel McPherson, was born up there. Right. Um, and okay. so, and, and, and that, so I moved to, uh, I moved to, my parents packed up and moved to London when, when I was eight years old. So I was there eight, nine, 10, and 11. Um, my brother and I, my sister wasn't born at the time, and we lived in the UK and I went to school over there for a couple of years. And that was when, around the time Craig was playing. And, and so there was an Australian connection. It was probably the first real Australian connection cool. in, in Premier League football. And my granddad was up there. And at that point, you know, I was eight years old. They were red. They were cool. They were winning. Of course you want to jump on that team. Um, but then as I got to know more and more about the club and about the team, I realised there was a, a family familial connection in there and, and that over the course of now, it's 30-something years of my life, those moments, um, whether it be watching the European Cup final with my dad, you know, in Istanbul, you know, in 2005... Uh, like being oh, in... Harry Kuehl, Harry Kuehl with the groin. You know, exactly. Or being in, I was in, I remember I was in Thailand in an FA Cup final against West, uh, West Ham? Yeah. West Ham Villa, no. West Ham, yeah. It's Ferdinand, saved again by Reina. And Liverpool have won the FA Cup. Good Lord, I can't get that wrong. Um... Although it was a hazy night. Um, <laughs> it was a tight <laughs> It was a pretty hazy night. But, you know, that's all fo- folklore stuff for that football club. Um, and, and so, and then I've been up to Anfield twice um, and uh, uh, with, with, with mates and with Warren Brown as my co-star and strike back, whose role he'll be playing later on in this podcast. I look forward to that. I look forward to and that. And so, mate, it just kind of really fit into to the DNA on multiple levels and, um so much so that, that, that I got my little "You'll Never Walk Alone" uh, scribble on my arm, just there in red. You do um, too. Yeah, just you're amongst... like a super fan. Well, I am, and it, and it kind of just and I, I love that. I, I love it, mate. I love it. I love the team. I love the club. I love what it stands for, and it's it's been um, it's been very very good to me over the years. You know, I've, I've had some great life experiences because of that team. Are uh, you immersing your young bloke in the Liverpool culture and folklore? Mate, I, he had three Liverpool kits at birth <laughs> and I actually travel, you know, I've had to travel a lot. Aussie's only, only yeah. 19 months old but I've been away for seven of those in, in multiple trips away for work. Um, but I carry a little Austin, I carry Austin's Liverpool jersey with me whenever I go overseas. Good man, yeah. good man. Yeah, All mate. right. So you, you mentioned a couple of times triathlon. I read from your Wikipedia page, which may or may not be true. (laughs) McPherson was discovered, I love the word discovered, while competing in the Cornell Triathlon in southern Sydney when he was 16. What does discovered mean? (laughs) Who discovered you? Like, what does that mean? Uh, I'm glad you were discovered. Yeah, it's look, that's a a, a little mutation of the truth. But around that time I had chickenpox and glandular fever. I couldn't, um, I couldn't. Uh, race those those Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning races that my footy coach John Holt was still running, um, as the guy I mentioned earlier. Um, so I would go and work as an official directing cyclist for pocket money. You know, I was 15, 16, so I'd go and get 50 bucks <laughs> for five hours' work and and go out and direct the cyclist and still get to hang out with my mates afterwards and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, And one day I was stationed out there with an acting manager who said, hey, mate, have you ever thought about acting or modelling or anything like that? I'm like, no, of course not. I've never considered that. I was going to be a triathlete and go to – I was supposed to be an end Swiss, mate. You know, what are you talking about? And um, I never called Stephen, but Stephen ended up tracking down my parents through through John, the rugby coach, and um, rang the home phone 
on on Monday night, about three or four weeks later, and said, hey, I met your son at this triathlon. Um, if he's interested, please give us a call and, and come in. So my mum packed me up and we went in and met Stephen and his boss, who's a, a manager, quite successful manager now called Mark Morrissey. And um, I read a script for Neighbours and they said, look, you're a bit raw, you need some classes, so we'll send you off to classes, but if you're interested, we'll represent you. So okay. So instead of going swimming after school, I started going to acting classes after school through my last two years of high school and um, got the job on Neighbours the night before my second last HSC exam. And that was when I packed up, I packed up, that was in November, and I packed up in January, end of January, and moved to Melbourne, February 1998, at 17 years old, to start Neighbours. Back to Dan in a moment. Next up on the Artist Series, I can't really believe we have this man on as a guest. One of the biggest recording artists on the planet. This fella is a seriously big deal. His name is Kevin Parker, a.k.a. Tame Impala, if you don't mind. He's from Perth. He's the Fremantle Dockers' number one ticket holder, and Kev's story is quite incredible, from drum lessons as a little bloke to absolute superstardom. Kevin has achieved so much success, but like so many who are elite at what they do, Kev, he's never satisfied. He's always pushing forward. Well, I guess when people are introduced to your music now, they know the less I know, the better. Triple J, mm. you know, biggest song of the decade. Yep. Um, which on YouTube, that one. Do you know how many people have watched that on YouTube? We talked about Spotify. How many people do you reckon have watched the less I know, the better's film clip on YouTube? A lot less than Spotify. I know that. I don't know how many. Like okay. 50 million? 101 million people have watched that YouTube clip. 101 wow. million, Kev. Damn, I knew I should have been in it. <laughs> yeah, you missed an opportunity there. <laughs> like that's, um, that is a tremendous. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know what the word is. Six million people have woke up and thought, I want to listen to Kevin Parker today. Like, yeah. that's unbelievable. Yeah. It must fill you with joy. It does. It does. Um, however, my brain is very good at uh, finding ways to not appreciate <laughs> right. Well, that's what I'm here to do, to tell you that that, that yeah. is an amazing thing, mate, whether whether you see it or not. See, I'll give you an example. Yeah, um, where my it. brain goes when you tell me that is uh, something that I learned at some point about streaming, the, the world of music streaming, and that is that people don't always intentionally click on your song when they listen to it. Oh, come on. Like 15 yeah, million true. people can't press the wrong button, Kev. Uh, well, no, because they're, they're just playing like a playlist that they subscribe to and then whoever's doing the playlist goes like, oh, I might put a Tame Impala song on and then it comes up and then that counts as a play. So there's things like that. Like it takes away nothing from my appreciation <laughs> from it whatsoever. That's Kevin Parker from Tame Impala next Tuesday on the Artist Series. On with Dan we go. You're a triathlete um, and you go to acting class. This And I'm sure this is still an ongoing process for you. Like, wh- wh- what do they teach you? Where do you start? <laughs> when you walk in, you're like, yeah, I'm a triathlete. Um, I've got to come down and do some acting classes. Like, where do they actually uh, start? I mean, it, so this class was, here's a script from uh, any TV show, Neighbours, Home and Away, All Saints, or, or, or a film or, or something. And these, these classes were specifically acting for camera. So you'd have eight people in a class, you get four, four pairs, you pair up, you'd learn your lines. Okay, you've got to learn your lines. I mean, even that's all right, but thankfully I've got a, a pretty good photographic memory and I was able to learn my lines pretty quickly. And then it was like, okay, now say them like a human would say them. What? <laughs> like not a like a robot or not like them. a... Like, you know, and so one of the first lessons this guy, this guy sent us home with was go and observe people. Go and watch people the way they talk in cafes. Go and watch them how they shop because that's what you're trying to do. And, you know, 25 years later, I'm still thinking about that lesson, you know, as you try and oh, refine wow. it, refine it, refine it, refine it. Um, but, but I, you know, I, it was probably wasted on us then at 17 or 18 trying to work out what he meant. I was 16. Um, but then you'd shoot these scenes on a camera against a blue screen and and then you'd sit and watch them back in front of the whole class and he would critique what worked, what didn't. And it was very much technical stuff as well, like eye lines, movements, extraneous movements, um, 
but yeah, a lot, a lot of camera craft stuff, which was ideal to then go into a job like Neighbours, which was high turnover, highly, a um, lot, lot of camera craft. You, you've got three cameras on the floor in, in studio and two cameras at the time outside on location and you're shooting multiple. It was high turnover television. So it was less about the acting and more about the, the ability and the, um, the technical aspect of it. Um, subsequently, and so much so that I realised about 10 years into my career that I'd never actually learned how to act. So I had to go back and relearn that. Right. Yeah. So you're learning the technical side of it. So so you, you, you do your year and a half there and you've got your, your, you're looking at the right camera and then you turn up uh, on Neighbours on your first day yep. as Johnny Samuels. Yeah. <laughs> like, how, how, how was your first day? So, like, now you've spent 25 years honing your craft. If yeah. I think back to my first thing I ever commentated, I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. I could not go back and listen. I struggle to listen to it today. Like, how raw were you and who were the big stars when you walked in yeah. as the new boy and were you absolutely packing it? Neighbours, everybody needs good neighbours, just a friendly wave each morning. Yeah, you know what, the, the, the saving grace, the one thing that worked in my favour is that I was so green, I didn't even know what was expected of me. And so you, you can't be packing it if you don't even know what's expected of you, you know? Like <laughs> you have to have an expectation that you think you're going to fail at to shit yourself, you know? And I didn't know that. I just had to turn up. Um, and so, so I knew so little. That, that I was okay, you know, that was my saving grace was I was completely oblivious to what other people expected me to do. Not worried, just surprised. Pleasantly, I hope. Of course. You come to steal breakfast? No, no, I never eat breakfast. It's not good? Well, I've always said anything that's good for you can't be much fun. I wouldn't look at breakfast as fun. More important, I guess. And so my first scenes were with um, Dr Carl and Susan and Brookie Satchwell, who play, um, uh, Billy and, uh, oh, what's Brookie's name? Uh, Billy and Anne, <laughs> Jesse Spencer right. and Anne and Andrew Bibby. And and I, I remember when it went to air, <laughs> when it went to air a couple of months later and it, some of my friends <laughs> rang me up and they were like, you're just smiling all the time. It's like you're just stoked to be there. <laughs> and I was. I was just stoked to be there. I was just trying to be, like, nice and friendly and happy and natural. And that's sort of what we'd been taught and work out where the cameras are. And 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 it kind of it kind of worked, I guess, because I got I ended up what was supposed to be an 18-month contract. I ended up there for nearly four years and um and and had a lot of a lot of success because of that show. But well, I didn't know what I was doing. Hey, oh, you guys still doing that maths? Thought you gave up. We did, but somehow someone got a new dose of interest. Can't imagine why. I was I was looking back on a on a scene, and you, uh, your man, um, Toadie, mm-hmm. the big toadfish, mm-hmm. was trying to um, impress a lady on the couch, a younger lady, and then you walked in. You might have even had your top off, and the toad just blew Pulled up. Out my speedos, mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And the, and the toad just blew up and basically said, I can't compete with this, and then you slid in there. <laughs> oh, there he goes. Well, Fleet, it's been a real pleasure working with you. We must catch up for lunch sometime. So how was the girls' uh, horse riding trip? Oh, good, yeah. I think it went really well. Dion had her eye on some stockman or something. Really? Uh, Joel, could you do me a favour? Depends what it is. Oh, well, you see, we've got this, like, um... Yeah, formal thing coming up. Yeah, what about it? Oh, well, uh, everybody else has got a partner except me and I was wondering if you'd be mine. So you were going with Paul? Yeah, that was just if I was desperate. You know, he actually wants to go with this other girl. What other girl? This girl he's got the hots for. And you see, if you take me, then he can take her and, instead of being noble. And um, then I won't look desperate at all. What do you say? I spent I spent a majority of the time period between 1998 and 2001 in my speedos. <laughs> you know that was that was that was the speedo years. <laughs> so so that that goes really well for you. I, I don't I, I want to do a bit of a timeline and then also discuss the skills of, yeah. of what you've learnt. Yeah. But you, you went to England. This is uh, you let, went to England in 2002, which is obviously a mm. bold move. And I don't know anything about what Godspell was. Yeah. But 
from what I can gather, it was a musical. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, did yeah, you yeah. have to sing? Yep. So. Well, this this is a whole this is a whole other story now. You, you may. By the end of this conversation, you may realise that I'm the type of person that bites off much more than they can chew and then just yes. goes for it. Um, but surely that's the key to life, Dan. Oh, look, it's like I said, mate, it's never dull. It's never dull and yeah. it's, it's brought me some of the greatest rewards. So, so it was a big 70s-style free love musical but around the parables of Jesus. So it was, yeah, go, go for it. Lots of singing, lots of famous, famous songs. And I toured that, but I had to learn how to sing. And so, hang on. So, do you just say, "Yeah, I'm good for the gig, yeah. or I can sing"? Like, are you telling blatant lies and then learning as you go? <laughs> well, thankfully, the producers of the pantomimes that I've done had seen me in those and gone, "We're going to put Godspell on for this guy because he's great. He's got a great following. He's well as on Neighbours. He can sing a bit. We'll, we'll build the show around him." Okay. Okay. So, so that was what led me to quit Neighbours and go off and pretend I was a musical theatre person. And I wasn't because all these other people had come out of musical theatre school and I'd come off the beach from Cronulla <laughs> via three years in Melbourne with Toadfish. Um, the old Toad. So, so, again, I just I just had to learn it as best I could, you know, and, and that's... So do you go to a singing coach? I went to a singing coach. Um, right. went to a singing coach in Melbourne while I was doing Neighbours before I left that. And then they work very hard with you. Look, they've still got, even going back 20 years, there was still a lot of computer programs that could make people sound a lot better and, than they could. And I'm sure that I, own, I owe the sound engineer and the sound mixer on Godspell a few beers for, for saving my backside <laughs> on multiple occasions. So, um, But it went well and we toured you know, 16 weeks around the UK and... I was 21 and single and touring with my best mate who was the other lead guy in the show and and we had a great time. It was, um, and ultimately it was Godspell, the producer of Godspell's brother who was the head of ITV at the time who came and saw the show and they were recasting the bill. And he said, oh, well, let's get that guy in the bill. He's great. And so I finished Godspell and moved to London and, and started on the bill and that's how that started. PC Cameron Tate. PC Cameron Tate, that's See, right. I, They're very I, good. I've done my reason because <laughs> I used to love the bill growing mm. up as a, as a young fellow when I still lived at home. I, I watched the bill. I thought you might be avoiding me. Yeah, no, look, I'm sorry about last night if I wasn't, you know. Right. Don't worry about it. But this weekend, I'm really looking forward to this weekend away. Good. Good, me too. And I'll make it up to you, I promise. Excuse me. I'll catch you after the shift. Hmm. You can wait that long. So let's use the bill as an example. Now I want to sort of discuss the craft of, let's start with learning your lines, Dan. Yeah. So for me, when I'm trying to learn players in a game of football, yeah. if I just trying to do it five years ago, if I had to learn 10 players, it would take me an hour. Mm-hmm. I'm a great believer that your brain, I've understood now, can get trained. So those 10 players now probably take me four or five minutes. Yep. Is it a similar process with scripts? Do, do you get better at it? And how do you go about learning it? And how much responsibility is there on you that you turn up the day on the bill on Thursday and know them off by heart? Um, whether it's the bill or whether it's uh, neighbours or whether it's a television commercial for Chicken Soup or whether it's Foundation, the biggest show for Apple TV, your job is to know your lines. Okay. Your job is to turn up there and do that. If if you turn up to footy and you don't know the names, bum, bum. Oh, smash. If, 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 um, someone turn, if a footy player turns up and he doesn't know the, the moves from training, yep. he, he, oh, actually, you know what, I only bought one boot. I bought, it, it's the same vibe. If you don't know your lines, you the amount of work that has gone in from script to financing to building the sets to casting everybody to employing 250 crew to get there, to light the place, to pre-light it, to get the cameras in mm. from overseas, to blah, 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 to pre-sell the thing, to actually get on that set. And if you're an actor and you turn up and your simple job is to memorise some words and you don't know that, then, then you shouldn't be working. 
Got you. And that's very hard. And in fact, I think Guy Pearce tweeted something very, yeah, very similar that. to I that. I did see that. Only a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And you realise that when you add in the um, the pressures of a pandemic, the, the extra loopholes and hurdles you have to jump to get that crew of 250 people to a country, to a set, in a filming location, to keep them safe, to keep the locals safe, to keep the insurers happy, to to get it all done, to get to screen in a time currently where more film and television is being consumed than any other time in history. Mm. I don't blame Tom Cruise for going off at a crew for not wearing their masks. We are not shutting this movie down! I don't ever want to see it again! And if you don't do it, you're fired. And if I see you do it again, you're f- gone. I don't blame uh, Guy Pierce for saying young actors or any actor should know their lines because at that point you are the sole conduit of all that time, all that energy, all that money, all that effort is to point a camera in you, at you and call action and for 60 seconds you've got to do your job. And so there is no room in, in my world and as I've got older and had more success and more experience, um, I, I stand for it less. And, and that may sound quite a harsh no, no, no. Like reality, you, but, it's, but it's you want to work at the top level, you have to demand excellence. You've explained it perfectly. Everyone's put their entire yeah. existence into giving you the opportunity and setting it up and the lights yes. and the cameras and the audio. So mm. just give me a brief description of how you go about learning your lines like someone hands you x number of pages that you've got to deliver in x number of days do you have a a process of doing how do you do it mate yeah it's it's bite-sized chunks and it's if you look i I had to do an audition last week that had 14 pages of dialogue and i got it two days before the thing now of those 14 pages that's five scenes so you break it break it down to five scenes and you go through and read on and you kind of go down and deeper 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 levels what is each scene about? What is, what is this scene? Well, this is about a, uh, a brother telling another brother that their dad's sick. This is about a husband telling his wife that he's got a work meeting tonight after work, but in fact, he's having an affair. This is about two best friends being reunited after 30 years apart, etc., like that. And you work out, okay, what's the, what's the story that we're trying to tell? Good writing and good dialogue is easy to to learn. So then, then, so once you've broken down those three or five scenes, Got it. what is that about? Um, the the actual lines themselves, the actual dialogue itself. If it's good, it's easy to to learn, easier to learn because it's once you get your stimulus, you get your feed line from someone else, and you know the character and you know the story you're trying to tell. Then then it should be. It should flow freely. Well, that's the natural response. Um, There's bits of this conversation that I would really like to stress so that you understand what I'm saying. And there's other bits that I'll just throw away because it's just, no one gives a shit and I'm just talking, you know? And so it's finding that kind of stuff within those scenes that helps me to learn them. So... This is, this is a great lesson for me for when I have to deliver my first script later on as we're talking about the Russian ex-military man. Exactly so right. So I'm taking all this in as I go. <laughs> a couple of things you mentioned there. Uh, you said you had two days to prepare for mm-hmm. uh, an audition. So there's a gig out there that Dan McPherson would give his left leg for, right? Mm-hmm. And you get the opportunity to, to audition for it. Mm-hmm. How much stress and pressure comes into it? Have you had auditions where you've just – the great thing about when you talk to sports people, anyone that's achieved success has failed along the way. Have you yep. walked into situations and thought, right, this is, could be massive for me yep. and then you've just absolutely butchered it or do you get past that where that doesn't happen? Yeah, particularly in that first couple of years in LA and I think I had a bit of a state of the union with my, 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 um, my manager in America when things weren't – going as I'd hoped. But it's, I'd been, it took me three years probably to get my first American job, uh, maybe longer, three and a half years to get my first American TV, TV and, gig. And in that period, how many gigs would you try it out for? Um, so he turned around and said, well, look, I'm pulling up, I'm, I'm holding up my end of the bargain. 
I've sent you for something like 137 auditions over the car, over the past three years. Wow. And I was like, okay, yep. And so it was actually Russell Crowe that said the hardest job that he ever had to get was his first job in America. And it took him 18 months to get his first. Uh, and once you get someone to take a risk on you over there, then you're off. And for me, it was the same thing. It took me three, three and a bit years to get my first American job. But once I got that first How'd you one, keep your chin up? How'd you keep your chin up, mate? Like that, that's, that's a couple of hundred times of people saying, yeah. ostensibly, you're not what we need. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. That's, a lot of, that's a lot of job interviews that you don't get. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, it was a constant... It was, it was, it was obviously there was self-belief. I knew I could get it. I, I, had the, I had the luxury of being able to come back to Australia and host Dancing with Stars once a year, so financially I didn't have to worry. I could do dancing and I could go back and, and live in America. The problem with that was if I, didn't have, if I didn't need the money, I didn't kind of need the job. And so I was riding my bike in Malibu more than I was learning my lines, um, <laughs> which is a lovely lifestyle, Howie, but it yes. wasn't getting me a job. Sounds um, all right to me, though. Yeah, but it wasn't too bad. Um, but I had to realise, okay, the guys that are getting the jobs, what are they doing that I'm not? What are... What's, what's going on here? And so I kept, I'd watch the shows that I didn't get. I'd watch the guys that, oh, oh okay, well, well, actually, no, he's pretty good. I get, oh, all right. So, man, I just had to, I just had to keep my head down, keep working, keep improving. And I, and the, the epiphany for me came, it actually came in the halfway point of a marathon at an Ironman in Germany in 2014. And I was, same place I'd been in Hawaii, same place I'd been in China, halfway through the marathon, Wheels falling off, you know, chucking my toys out of the pram, going, what am I still doing this sport for? And I had this moment of clarity where I went, why don't I take all this effort that it's taken to get to a start line of another Ironman and put that into my acting career? Mm. And so I, I realised that the 30 hours a week that I was training for this race to, to travel to Europe and have a holiday and hang out with my mates and my, my partner at the time and all this sort of stuff. Fantastic way to spend your life. Fantastic way to invest your time in your, in your health and your happiness and, and whatnot. But at odds with what I was trying to do in America with my career. So I, I quit that race on the spot, put my hand up, jumped in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ambulance, went to the med, te- med tent. Med race. On the spot. 22 kilometres in. Went to the German med tent. They gave me four litres of IV fluid. I met um, Zoe, my wife at the time, back at back at the uh, the finish line. I had two steins of beer in my one in each hand. She said, "What are you doing? What happened?" And I was like, "I I've had this epiphany. I'm quitting. I'm quitting triathlon. I'm quitting riding my bike. I'm going to put all this effort into my acting career." She went, "Okay, cool." And so I went back to. To, to LA, we, we moved back, went back to LA after that trip and I did exactly that and I got my first American job three months later. And it, So there's, a, there's yeah. a million questions to ask yep. you about there. Yep. Just short and sharp. You, you've gone for audition number 164 and you've missed out. Yep. Do you get a phone call? Is it your agent? How do you find out that you, and I say this respectfully, how do you find out that in the eyes of the people that are casting it that you failed yet again? Mm. How, do you, how do you get the word? Um, so... So the the American terminology is it's not moving forward. This one, this one, they they loved you. It's not moving forward this time. It's not you. It's me. <laughs> it's not you. It's That's me. We'll what call it sounds you. like. So okay. I had a lot of this one isn't moving forward. Okay, right. cool. But what a what happened over the course of a couple of years, mate? And, I like and you've that. Got, mate, this one this one's not moving forward. I'm sorry. Okay, cool. Not this time, Dan. It's not moving forward. I'm sorry. Okay, cool. Um, and but it sounds like to me it is moving forward, just not with you. <laughs> exactly right. And right, that took me a few okay. years to worry to work that out as well. Right. Um, right. And. But what, so there's sort of five levels, five steps of these auditions. You get a general audition or, or generally a self-tape, but back then you're in the room. It's fascinating. Then you get a, you get a callback. So you get like in a second time, generally in the room with the casting agent. So they're refining it. Let's say they've got 1,000 guys. Now they're down to 500 or 400 or 500 down to 200 or whatever. Then 
Then the third step is a producer's or director's session where you go back a third time and you've got the producers and the directors in the room. And then the fourth time might be another one of those or it might then be a network test. So the final level of this is a network test, which means you're down to the top two, top three, top five guys or girls for that role. To get from the producer's session to the network test, you negotiate your entire contract. You negotiate money, you negotiate dates, you negotiate time off, you negotiate flights, you, you negotiate everything as though you have the job before you can go to the final level, which is the network test. Then you go and do it again for the heads of the network, head of NBC, head of CBS, head of Paramount, head of Sony, head of whoever, and they go, yeah, that guy's good. Well, that guy's good, that guy's good, or no, no, no. And that whole contract, the whole dream, the whole money that you've gone, I'm about to get this massive windfall and get this, evaporates in a phone call. So, I mean, that's... That's brutal. It's brutal. So we've had days where where we've woken up and there's been a call at 7am going, hey, that that job you auditioned for six weeks ago, they can't find the person. You've got a network test today. We have to negotiate the test offer now at 7am so you can be there at 11am at Sony to do it. Really? And um, and this this wasn't for me. This this was for, for a friend. But, uh, and you got to do the test, but you can't step on that stage until the contract's signed and it's seven years in Hawaii and you've got to move to Hawaii in two weeks. Oh, far out. For seven years. So scrambling around and um, do the thing, sign the contract. And at, at seven o'clock that night, pretending not to look at the phone, the, uh, the phone call rings and went, sorry, it went to the other person. Oh. And you go back to square one. But for that 12-hour period, it's all systems go. It's I don't have to worry about money for the next seven years. I'm going to be on TV. We're going to live in Hawaii. We're going to be doing this. It's like I've got a job. And then 12 hours later, sorry, other person. And that's, that's the highs and lows. And that's what some people thrive on. And I'm thankfully one of those person, people. And some people can't stand. And that's why they pack up and leave LA. That's the end of Daniel McPherson part A. Hollywood awaits in part B, as does some really poor acting by me. Listener.